So we are continuing this series in James. We called it a little less conversation, a little, bit, little more action. And this morning, James is talking about how we put our faith in action with regards to money. So at the end of the talk, I'm going to be talking about how we can give money to St. Peter's, to our church family here, and to the work that God is doing in and through us as a church. If you are here and you're a guest or you're a visitor, you can totally ignore anything I'm about to say. However, if you consider yourself a Christian, you'll probably want to apply some of these principles to your church where you feel like you are plugged in and you consider yourself a member of the family. If you are here and you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, Christian, can I just reassure you that we don't talk about money every week? Currently, I'm probably confirming every stereotype you thought that you had about church. And here you are, Sunday morning, and I am talking about flesh uh, being dissolved like fire and money. And I'm trying to get money out of you. We don't do this. We do this twice a year, basically. So we talk about money twice a year as church. And then we give an opportunity for all members of the church family to pray about how they should be giving to church, but in other areas as well but we don't do it every week but when we do do it we lock the doors and you can't leave until you get your credit card details so just to warn you about that in a bit what do we have in this passage then well we have James is saying a way of thinking that is a serious problem in our life number one I'll talk about that secondly we have a reason why that way of thinking is a problem in our life and thirdly thankfully we also have a solution and then James goes on to give a bit of a case study about money in how this way of thinking and the problem of the way of thinking, the solution to the way of thinking works out in our own lives. So firstly, what is the problem? The problem, in short, according to James, is that we think that we are in control of our own life. Verse 13 and 16. He says this, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go to this or that city, we'll spend a year there, we'll carry on business and make money. And then in verse 16, he says, as it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. What is the problem? James is saying the problem that we have is that we think we are in control of our lives. Now, let me just caveat this. James isn't speaking against financial planning here. He's not speaking about having a strategy for our money. He's not speaking about planning in life. He's not saying if you plan in your life, then you are evil. It's very important to note in verse 16 that James is talking about boasting in feeling like you're in control in your life. And we know it's not about financial planning and we know it's not about having a strategy for our life or having a plan for our life because elsewhere in the Bible we're encouraged to do things like that so if you look at the wisdom literature in Proverbs we're told that it's foolish not to have a plan for our money it's also foolish not to have a plan for our life it's a good thing to have a plan for our life but we need to involve God in our planning as and when we do it in Matthew 14 Jesus in the context of talking about the cost of becoming one of his disciples gives the analogy that no one sets out to build a tower without the money to actually to be able to finish the job. If anyone does that, everybody laughs at that person. Anyone planning to build a tower? 
make sure you have your budget in place for the tower. Um, nobody, likewise, says sends an army into battle against 10,000 if you've only got 2,000 men or soldiers to fight in the battle. You have to plan in order to make sure that when you're going in, you know that you are following wisdom. So James isn't talking about wisdom here. He's not talking about financial planning. So what is the problem that James is talking about? Well, verse 16, he says, the problem is boasting. Now, he uses spiritual language there because in the Greek, that word actually means glory in. The problem is glorying in this perception that we're in control of our life. Really, if you wanted to summarize it, it was saying it's making ourselves divine, God, thinking that we're in control. So how do we know if we've got this problem that James is talking about? Well, firstly, we know we've got this problem if we're arrogant. So he says there, as it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. What does arrogance look like? It looks a bit like this. Everything is going to be okay because I think I'm in control. No matter what comes up against me tomorrow, everything's going to be fine because I can fix it. You want a little bit more security in your life? Give me a day, I'll make it happen. You want a bit more significance in your life? Give me some time, I'll make it significant. Everything is going to be fine because I know that in reality, I am in control of my life and I can make things go as they need to go. I can control my future. So you know you've got this problem if you tend to think along those lines and it outworks itself in arrogance, if we're honest. But there's a second telltale sign that's implied in the text that's less obvious than that because we don't let's be honest all walk around like that saying that sort of thing some of us might but most of us probably don't what's probably more common amongst us here is the same problem but a slightly different mindset and the mindset is this everything is not okay because I think I'm in control of my life do you understand the nuance there it's actually exactly the same root problem we're anxious or we're stressed or we're worried about tomorrow because we think that we can control our future. We think that we, if we grab hold of it, are able to do something. Now, this might work itself indirectly. So we're anxious or we're stressed about tomorrow by financial things coming up or things coming our way. And we feel like we need to control it. And so we manipulate relationships and other people so as to make it happen. So it's less about boasting in our own plans and schemes and more about a, a bit of a victim mindset. It's essentially a bit of what we were talking about last week as to saying, well, I know that if I do things in the right way, I'm going to be able to somehow control what's going to happen tomorrow so we get anxious we might be anxious about having to ask our parents to bail us out for the second time in a year or we might be anxious about having to find another job to supplement the first job that we have or that we need to ask our boss for a pay rise it's not that we're doing the arrogant approach so we're not saying I can sort it out I can make it happen but the fact that we're still anxious and we're still worrying implies that we think that we're in control of tomorrow and James is saying that's exactly the same problem and it's implied in the text and it's exactly the same problem because what does it do? It's glorying in our own ability to be able to make things okay, to find security and significance in and of ourselves. Both symptoms point to this underlying problem and the problem is this, we think that we're in control or in other words, we think that we're God. We think we're divine. 
So I hear you cry. Why is this sort of attitude a problem in life? Well, James thankfully tells us why it's a problem. It's a problem because the reality is we're simply not in control. Verse 14, it says this. Why? You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. Why do you speak like that? You don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. Do we need any more evidence than the last two, three years that we've been through to suggest that we simply are not in control of tomorrow and our future? Nobody planned for this global pandemic, did they? You can tell that because every government scrambled and had a different plan because they were making it up as they were going along and the plan they thought was right ended up not being the right plan and it's been absolute chaos. It's been the same in our own lives. A little bit niche, but it's been the same in the church. There were loads of prophets that started prophesying about what was God was doing in the virus and the pandemic as a whole after it had happened. And the biggest question I always ask them is, why didn't you prophesy about this before it happened? It's crazy. Why? Because we're not in control. Because the security and the significance of what's about to happen isn't dependent on us. It can't be dependent on us because we are not God. I read an article this morning about the war in Ukraine. And if this doesn't highlight how self-obsessed we are as a nation, then I don't know what does. But apparently the average household in the UK is going to be £1,259. They've worked it out to the pound. Worse off because of the war in Ukraine. Hundreds of people dying, and we're thinking about how it's gonna affect our household bills in the UK. Why? Because we want to be in control of our lives. We think that we're able to scheme and to plan and to make our futures foolproof. Or we're anxious and we're stressed because we need to make things work out and control it. This can be personal as well, can't it? We wake up the next day and we go into work and we find out we've been made redundant, as many people did with P&O this week. Or there's a sudden loss of a loved one, a significant relationship in our life that provided us with security and with significance. And when they get sick and we lose them tragically, our sense of security and significance completely gone underneath our feet. What about our own health? Our own well-being, our mental health, as it's attacked or we feel like we're under depression or we're anxious, we feel like the bottom has fallen out of our lives. We do not need any more evidence, if we're brutally honest with ourselves, that we are not in control. We cannot possibly be our own gods. We cannot possibly find security and significance in and of ourselves. And here's the truth. The truth is we all want to feel secure, don't we? And that's not a bad thing. The problem is that we think that we can create our own security by working hard and playing to our strengths. And the truth in reality is that hard work and skill is important, but it is a tiny, minuscule part of the overall arch of life and how things happen in our lives. Circumstances, timing, upbringing, culture, world events, all of these things play into our day-to-day and they affect our future, don't they? And they are all beyond our control we're not in control of those parts of our lives we're dependent on forces beyond our control Jason um, sent me this brilliant article this morning um, 
This is Gen Z. This is the Gen Z problem, okay? Any of you Gen Z? Probably not, are we? It's mainly the evening service. We like to think we're Gen Z, but we're not. For the past, this is about manifestation, okay? So rather than arrogant schemes saying tomorrow I'm going to have a business plan that's going to make me loads of money, which might be more our generation and above. I'm being generous there. This is Gen Z. This is what they do. For the past five years, Hannah Gregan, 23, has been practicing manifestation, the spiritual practice of turning thoughts and intentions into reality. If that's not making yourself God, I don't know what is. While struggling with her mental health and studying psychology at university, Gregan decided to make a change. I didn't necessarily agree with everything I was learning at uni. Get why? She says, I was finding a lot of the science behind it contradictory with my personal journey. So it made me look elsewhere. And do you know where else she looked? She looked into manifestation. She decided, if I can just will within myself that tomorrow's going to be a good day, it's going to be a good day. And we all laugh and chuckle, at least I'm laughing and chuckling, but we have our own plans and schemes and strategies to do exactly the same thing. That just happens to be Gen Z's plan. Manifestation, give it a go. Anyway, Link, what's James saying? James is saying this, if we think that we're in control of our life, we are living in an illusion. It's an illusion, it's not real. So what's the solution? Well, the solution here is in two parts. First part of the solution, James says, verse 14, he says, get perspective. Get perspective. You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. You know when you go out in the morning to put the rubbish out and it's cold and you breathe out and like a mist goes and then it dissolves. Or the kids, when they go to school, they love doing this. They're breathing out and they're seeing them. Look, daddy, there's mist, there's mist. Our life is like that mist. We breathe out, goes out, disappears in an instant. Job puts it like this. He says, my life is but a breath. A psalmist in Psalm 102 puts it like this. My days vanish like smoke. My bones burn like glowing embers. And here's the thing. This is not just the Bible telling us to get perspective and that our life is tiny in comparison to the age of the earth and everything that's happening in the eternity of God. Scientists tell us exactly the same thing. Scientists, every single scientist will tell us at some point the sun is going to burn out. It's going to cease to exist. There's no strategy or planning or any kind of move that we're going to be able to make so as to mean that that is not going to affect our future. Unless we build a spaceship. Although it'll still be very cold. And I watched 100 the other day. Have you watched that? It's very old. And it's very complicated because they build a spaceship for something that happens on Earth and then they go back to... Anyway, it doesn't matter. It was very complicated. That's the point. It is a drop in the ocean. That means that everything we do will be utterly forgotten. This is a nice thought. Nothing we do makes a lasting difference. Lovely thought. No one will be around to remember it. Get perspective. I don't know how this applies in your life, but sometimes I like to think of it in terms of church. Obviously, I think a lot about you lot, and I think a lot about church in general and what I feel like God's asked us to do in Broccoli. And I find myself sometimes getting anxious or getting worried. How are we going to do what we feel like God's asked us to do here? What do we need to do? What strategies do we need to employ as a church to make sure that we're able to reach our vision of bringing heaven to South What do we need to do? And then I feel like God instantly often just humbles me as I get myself into his presence and do you know what he reminds me every time he says what you are doing Ben is a drop in the ocean it's a drop in the ocean 
We get on Sunday about 200 people. Broccoli is 18,000 people. There's X number of million people in South East London. Do we really think that we're arrogant enough that we are good enough to make a difference in South East London? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. We need to get perspective. We need to realize that our own scheming, our own planning, our own skill, our own ability is not going to be able to affect our future in the slightest. Now, here's the thing. This is either utterly terrifying or it's absolutely liberating. Do you want me to tell you how to make it absolutely liberating? This is how we make it absolutely liberating. Verse 15, he says this, instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. What's James saying there? James is saying, if you want a solution for this problem that we think, we're under this illusion that we think we're in control of our life. You want the solution for that, get perspective and then start second part of the solution, living for eternity. Live for eternity. Put your trust in God. Remember, the language he's using there is this glory language, the God. Do we want to put our trust, which is really faith, which is our sense of security, our sense of significance in our own abilities to be able to make things happen, to give us significance, to make security happen in our life? Or do we want to choose to put our faith and trust in God, who, by the way, is the creator of the heavens and the earth, is eternal, is far above and beyond anything that we face in our tomorrows as a result of our yesterdays and on and on into the future. He is Lord of all. If we want to find a solution to this problem, we get perspective and we start living for eternity. Now, caveat on that. Does that mean that we live in a closed, predetermined universe? Some Christians think that this is the case. It's absolutely not the case. I know it's not the case, and you know it's not the case because you've read your Bible. And when you read your Bible, you realize that our own actions have consequences, either good consequences or bad consequences. But we also know from the Bible that when we pray, it makes a difference. And so therefore, there is something of us actually walking out and stepping out into our calling as individuals. When Jesus came to earth, he told the people that the kingdom of God is at hand. That essentially means that heaven, eternity, is at hand and you can reach out and touch it. Now, here's the choice that we all make. And that's why Jesus says, repent and follow me. The choice that we have is we can reach out and we can join in with God who is making eternity happen all around us. Or we can choose to go our own way and be God and Lord of our own destiny and future and make it happen in our own strength. And that's the choice that we have to make. Do we want to live for eternity or do we want to live for the fleeting moment of our tomorrows? Get perspective, live for eternity. What does it look like to live for eternity? Well, James gives us a little brief case study here, which is depressing in every way, but I'm going to give it to us because it's in here. So here's this case study. It's from chapter five. This is how that kind of problem thinking, the illusion of self-control works out in our finances and our money. So... Um, remember, the, the other thing to say actually about this is that scholars think that these, the, the people that James are talking to here aren't Christians, okay? So he's talking to non-Christians about their perspective on money, about their perspective on um, wealth and success and all that sort of thing. What's important to say about the New Testament and the Bible in general is it is, it is not a sin to have money. There's godly rich people and there's ungodly poor people. It's not a sin to have money. In fact, in the New Testament, there's people who have money who use it. It's about the heart with which they use it and their perspective on life, but they use it for the glorification of Jesus and they use it for the coming of the kingdom. So for example, uh, Lydia funds Paul's church planting. 
or Joseph of Arimathea gives the tomb to Jesus that Jesus was laid to rest in. We were just talking about, we were singing about that a second ago. So it is not a sin to be rich. It is about your heart towards money and it's about how you use it for the kingdom. Anyway, that's the caveat. What is the problem here? The problem is that these people think they've got loads of money and they think that they got, well, they've got loads of money, sorry, and they think that they are God. They think that they are in control. So this is uh, what it looks like. You've hoarded your wealth. Verse 14 or whatever that is. Verse three, sorry. Um, The wages uh, you failed to pay. So you've hoarded your wealth. You've got loads of it. Uh, You failed to pay the wages of your workers and you've lived on earth in luxury and self Indulgence. So just really quickly, how do we know if we've got the same problem of this case study that James is bringing up here? Well, first uh, reason that we will know if we've got this same problem is we have more money than we need, verse 3. So worth asking yourself this morning, do you have more money than you need? Now, again, this isn't the same as stewarding or planning. It's about an attitude of the heart. That's important. But are we relying on our money for our sense of security? Do we have more than we need? Second question we need to ask ourselves in this case study, are we living a life of luxury and selfish desire? Just check with yourself. What are you spending your money on? The word that he uses there for self-indulgence is voluptuous, which essentially means just giving in to any sensual pleasure and just throwing money at everything and anything. So just check on yourself. Are you living that kind of life? Third uh, way of working out if we are in this problem with money. Are you willing to wrong other people to get more of it? In this case, it's not paying workers, so it's injustice in that way. In our case, it might be stabbing your colleague in the back so as to get on in your career. It might be cheating on our taxes. It might be lying on a form. It might be telling every single person around us that we're struggling with money constantly so that in the hope that they start to give money to us like a charity. Just check with yourself. Do you have this problem that James is talking about here? That's the presenting problem. Why is that a problem? Well, we've already talked about this, but let's just point it out in the case study. Firstly, your wealth is meaningless. Verse two, rot, moths, corrosion, can't give you the security and the significance that you desire. Secondly, it's eating your flesh like fire. Verse three. What does he mean by that? Well, let's think about that. Who knows here that no matter how much money you have, it's never enough. We're told this by rich people all of the time. Jim Carrey, famous quote. He says, I wish that everybody could have everything they want, have all of the riches and the desires so that they know that it's not the solution. But we don't need rich people to tell us that. Why don't we need rich people to tell us that? Because we know in our heart of hearts, we feel like we never have enough. We feel like we always need more. Do you know what it's like when you're on that treadmill and on that cycle? It feels like it's eating away at your flesh. Why? Because you've put your security and you've put your significance in money and money is never going to be able to bear the weight of that. Why? Because it's just not good enough. It can't be God. That's why Jesus says you can't serve both God and mammon, which is a a, a Greek word for the God of money. You can't serve the God of money. If you do, it will eat away at you. And then third thing, uh, 
Consequence, this is why it's a problem. You set yourself up for judgment, verse four. It says, you've fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. We don't talk much about this sort of thing here, but the reality that James is talking about there is at some point, we're going to have to give an account of how we use our money. Now, I don't like talking about that much because I think if you talk about it too much, then you're driven by fear and I'd much rather be driven by love. And that's why the solutions that I'm about to suggest I think are better. But worth thinking about, isn't it? How are we using our money? If someone were to really look at it, because Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart is. If you want to know where your heart is, just have a little look at your balance sheet. Because so often we can tell where our heart is as a result. It's worth thinking about. Because other people might not be able to judge it. Why? Because we won't let them look at it. But God knows. And God sees it. And that's not to say that that's a fear thing. But it's just to say it's a reality, isn't it? So we have the problem. We have the reason it's a problem. Little case study James is giving us. What's the solution? It's the same solution he's already talked about. Number one, get perspective. Money cannot solve this desire and this need that we have in us for security and significance. It's just not good enough. Don't even try letting it have that kind of power over our life. I talk a lot about Psalm 73. I've talked about it before. I think it's one of my favorite psalms. It's not an obvious favorite psalm because it starts off with lots of moaning and misery. But the reason I love Psalm 73 is because in the middle of it, the psalmist, who was a guy called Asaph, who was one of the worship leaders, brilliant worship leader. He was the worship leader in the temple who when they, they consecrated the temple, he started singing the glory of God fell and they're all face down on the floor. He was that worship leader. He's a very good one. That's the kind of worship we need here again and again here at St. Peter's but he knew what the presence of God was like and he says this in the middle of the psalm after he's got done complaining about everything that's going wrong in his life he says until I entered the sanctuary of his presence and then I understood their final destiny what's he saying there he's got perspective how has he got perspective he came into the presence of God If you want to get perspective on your financial life, in fact, if you just want to get perspective on your life in general, how do you do it? Get yourself into the presence of God. Wait on the Holy Spirit. Ask him to fill you. And then you'll realize everything outside the presence of God is subject to distortion. That's why we have all the problems with money that exist in the world. It's because they're all living outside of the presence of God and it's distorted. And so there's this weird, ridiculous idea that we've got this illusion of control in our lives and that money can give us security and significance, but it's not the reality of life. Everything outside God's presence is distorted. If we get ourselves in the presence of God, we see the final destiny. We see that it rots away, that it's meaningless, that it's worthless, that it can't carry the weight of purpose in our life and security. So first thing, get perspective. Second thing, ask God what to do with your money. Follow the Holy Spirit when it comes to your finances. What does this look like? Here's Jesus on money. He says this, Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what does it look like If we've got perspective and we started to ask God in relation to our finances, but just life in general, what we should do with our resources and our time, it looks like this. It looks like investing in eternity. It looks like investing in heaven. It looks like storing up for ourselves treasures in the presence 
of God. It's a bit like the story Andrew shared earlier. Somebody, I don't know who it was, but somebody has been praying that morning and God has told them to give Andrew a bunch of money to buy a computer. And so they're just following the Holy Spirit. This is what I feel like God's asking me to do. So I'm going to chuck him an email and I'm going to say, I've got this money. I feel like God's asked me to do it. I'm going to give you money for a computer. Andrew, unbeknownst to this person praying, has been praying that week for a computer. Isn't that amazing? That is the person that gave the money. That is storing up treasure in heaven. They're a thousand pounds short or however much they gave. But I tell you, they're ten thousands in credit in the heavens, in eternity because they're storing up their treasure in heaven. Jesus says it like this. He says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. I quite like that. It's this idea. It's like secret ninja giving. Don't even think about it. You're trying to follow the Holy Spirit. Don't let your thinking, your planning, your strategy get involved with what the Holy Spirit is doing. Simply just try and live according to the Holy Spirit. And the more you get yourself in the flow with finances and with giving and with money, the more fun it becomes. In fact, Paul says that he wants everybody to become hilarious givers. That's the word that he uses in the Greek. Hilarious. That it's supposed to be joy-filled. It's supposed to be fun. Why? Because money doesn't have any power over our lives. It doesn't give us security. It doesn't give us worth. It doesn't give us significance. So when we give it away, it's like us laughing at all of those people that have this illusion that they have their lives in control. And it's us enjoying the riches that God has given us so that we can sow into the kingdom of God and invest in heaven. It's supposed to be fun. Right, so I said I'd talk about giving to St. Peter's. Here's a few things to know about that. Our vision at St. Peter's is to play our part in bringing heaven to South East London. We talk about that a lot here. We'll continue to talk about that a lot. It feels like that's what God has asked us to do. And so therefore, in everything that we do here at church, including in our finances, we're trying to invest in bringing heaven to South East London. And if you want to know more of the details about how we spend the money that gets given to us as a church, you can talk to Andy at the back. Andy, could you give us a wave? Lovely, there's Andy. He's our director of ops. He can give you way more detail. He can even give you spreadsheets if you want. If you want to talk to Chris, our treasurer, Chris, give us a wave. There he is, lovely. Chris has lots of graphs with lines going upwards because he specializes in that sort of thing. Talk to him and he'll love to tell you more about. If you want to know how we're investing the money here at St. Peter's, then please talk to them. And we have a PCC that has close eyes on our finances. Who knows? We're giving a financial report on Monday to the PCC so that we know that we are following the spirit in our finances. So essentially so that it's not me buying new trainers every week because that's what we're spending our giving on or something like that. Stupid things like more lighting. Who needs more lighting? Who needs more chairs? We probably need more chairs actually, but we don't need more chairs like this. But anyway, the point is, are we investing in eternity? Are we investing in the things of heaven? Are we investing in bringing South East London and heaven together again? Hopefully we are. And we have an incredibly generous church here. Um, I don't know if you know the story of St. Peter's, but we had no funding at the beginning when we did the church graph nearly four years ago now. We were given 25K from a church in King's Cross called KXC, and that went to pay for the other half of my stipend because this church had been put down to a half stipend. We were also given a grant by New Wine, and we spent that money on front-loading some of the stuff. But the faith on the PCC of this church was incredible. They tripled the budget in the first budget review here and we front loaded our spending so that we could put our faith in God for growth and God grew the church in miraculous ways and as a result of that people have started giving and now this is an incredibly generous church as it was before but it's bigger so therefore we've got more money coming in we have a projected annual income of about 380k of which 90% is congregational giving 
So we give money back to the Church of England. The Church of England isn't giving us loads of money. We've also just been made a resourcing church. That doesn't mean that we get millions to sort ourselves out. It actually just means that we have to give even more away. So we give away as the congregation gives. And so it's funded by us. Why do we need more money at St. Peter's at the moment? Because as I said, we are an incredibly generous church. Well, we're at a point uh, on Sundays where over two services, we have over 200 adults now on a regular basis. This has grown significantly post-pandemic. So whereas pre-pandemic, we were about 150, 160. Um, we've grown in the morning and in the evening. Our evening service has grown from 70 people to, from 20 people, sorry, to 70 people now. And obviously there's staff-related costs to that. We're going to be doing, or I'm going to be doing this exact same talk. I probably won't subject them to James. I'll probably do something from Jesus. But I'm going to do a giving talk next week um, to the evening service. And the idea is we need to now start getting some of that new growth in the evening, giving into, sowing into the life of St. Peter's. But for us here as well, it's worth saying that if we are giving here in the morning service, we're investing in growth in the evening service. And something that's beautiful about the evening service is it's majority people in Gen Z. So it's majority people who are manifesting left, right and centre that tomorrow is going to be a better day. It's investing actually in a lost generation. It's a lost generation. It's, it's people that the church aren't currently reaching. And because of the brilliance of Chris and Alice, and let's be honest, God, what's happening there is we're starting to see that grow with lots of young people. So as a morning congregation, let's invest well into our evening service. So that's partly why we need more money. We also need more money because we need to increase the space in the morning. Um, General church planting uh, rule is you need 80-20, so you need 20% space in your service so that when someone walks in the back, they feel like they can belong. They don't feel like it's so full um, that they can't be a part of what's going on here. We're a little bit smaller this morning, but certainly in the last month, it's been hard. When people walk in the back, it's felt so full that they're not being able to find a space. And so we need to create more space here on Sunday morning. I'd love to move that font. If anyone wants to help me lift it up after the service, we can do it. Don't need a faculty for that. We want to peg the stage back a little bit so that we have a few more rows at the front so we can fit more people in and we need to just do a bit a few space saving thing if I'm honest the biggest need financially that we have right now is that you are all having far too many kids can you please stop having children or can you please stop bringing children no I love children they're great they're very important but we don't have space for it so that room's full that room's full the back chapel's full we started hiring the scout hut it's already at capacity so we're going to have to think about putting some sort of structure out the back a tent probably which really we can only use in the summer so we need to think long term about that in terms of building space and that sort of thing so that is part of what we're sowing into here at St Peter's on Sunday second thing we need to sow into is the life course we've just had our last life course 40 people uh, came on the life course this is people for whom they aren't used to church they wouldn't consider themselves Christians and there was an incredibly low drop-off rate at this life course normally it starts about 30 and it dwindles to 25 and um, 40 it kind of maintained that level the whole way through so 40 people heard the gospel over eight weeks on this last uh, life course. As a result of that, we have seven conversions or people coming back to faith. We've got five baptisms happening on April 24, and I think there's going to be more. We felt like God say that 10 people will convert because of this life course, and so we're praying the other three in. But there is new life coming in. We're growing because of conversion. We're growing not because of transfer growth from other churches, but because people out there in Brockley and in South London are hearing about Jesus, and they're giving their lives lives to Jesus and that is brilliant growth and it's the kind of growth that we want to invest in because it's growth for eternity isn't it it's growing in the things of the spirit and investing in 
heaven. Um, that is, there's a cost associated with the life course. So it probably costs about £20 a week per head to send someone through the life course, which seems ridiculous. But one of the values of the life course is that when they come in, we don't charge them for food. So we lay on a beautiful meal for them. Mags does the meal, it's absolutely incredible. And we think that there's a biblical basis for doing that kind of thing. That as a church, if we can be generous to the people coming in and giving them an amazing meal when they come in, it helps show what kind of spirit we're inviting people into. It's not we're gonna have a loaded gun to your head so that you convert to Jesus. It's simply that we want to bless people. So they come in and it costs a bit of money. There's also subsidising of the weekend away. Um, We had an amazing weekend away where people who had never been to church before were filled with the Holy Spirit. We had to subsidise that quite significantly, partly because um, it costs money to go to a hotel, but also because a lot of people who came on the life weekend couldn't afford to go away. And so we subsidised it so that they were able to go away. And then, of course, there's staff and admin-related costs to the life course. Other thing we need to invest in for eternity here at St. Peter's, it's a social supermarket. Last week... We fed 92 households as a result of the social supermarket. We thought it would start to level off after the pandemic. In fact, last week it seems to have gone up again. So people come in, they pay £3 and they get about £30, £40 worth of shopping. There's lots of other amazing things that happen during the social supermarket. There's a prayer and kindness team, which is amazing. So people just making friendships, coming alongside people who are coming and then offering to pray. And there's been some amazing testimonies as a result of that. There's a health and wellbeing being club that happens here at St Peter's at the same time that people are able to plug into. There's a job club that people can come into and get help with their CVs or applying for jobs or going to interviews and there's also a come and see group which is essentially people who are interested in Jesus and just can come along no strings attached and start to find out more about him. So it's not just about food, what we're doing really here is we're creating another church midweek. And people are coming in and they're having their practical needs met in love, but also they're experiencing the power of Jesus. We need to keep investing in that. And there is a cost to continue this. So we're currently subsidised by Love Your Neighbour by 3k a month for this. It was more, but at the last gift day, I said, can we up our giving so that we can pay for it? And we managed to do that by, I think, about 1-2k. We need to have another step now today um, to start to try and take some of that on. Love Your Neighbour are going to continue giving to us, so they give us free food, essentially, 3k's worth a month. But they want us to start drawing down from that and instead making it more sustainable, our own model, so that we here, the church family at St. Peter's, can pay for the social supermarkets. That's partly what we need the money for. Also, we want to invest in two of our new values that we have come up with recently at St. Peter's. Every day, not an event, and ambitiously local. How are we doing that? Well, firstly, we're doing something called the Afterlife Course, for want of a better name. In fact, we actually had someone come on this course wanting to find out more about the Afterlife, not Afterlife Course, and it was quite amusing. Uh, We left that to Andy. Anyway, Um, We need to start thinking about these people, these seven people who have converted on the life course or the other people from the other life course, how do we start discipling them? Because one of the things that we felt like God said to us really clearly during the pandemic is we are rubbish at discipleship. And I say we, and I mean me. We haven't done a good job. We've not done a good job as a church helping disciple people as opposed to simply seeing people convert or having a lovely Sunday service. So we need to invest in that. Secondly, we need um, to invest 
used in our village structure and our small groups. So as a result of this, Chris is moving to oversee the evening service with Alice because of the new growth there. Andy is actually moving from his current role and he's going to be taking on a role that focuses more on discipleship and villages. And the idea is that these villages start to become like mini churches. So I'm going to be saying at some point in the near future, I would rather you go to your village than come here on Sunday morning. So look forward to that. But the idea is that the villages become more like churches in the sense that they are being fed by worship and the Bible, that they're supporting each other as a family, but also you're starting to do mission in and out of your villages. And we need to actually start to strategize towards that and work out how we're going to do it and how we're going to support the village leaders as a result. And obviously there's staff costs related to that. So three ways to respond. Hello, kids. You're just in time to hear about money. Do you guys know about money? Yeah, you spend it, don't you? Um, three ways we can respond today. Firstly, uh, can you pray about starting to give? So we have about 300 adults who would consider themselves part of the St. Peter's family. We have, a, as I said, very generous church, about 133 regular standing orders giving to the church. And obviously a lot of us are in marriages and couples, so therefore 133 is a great number. But there will be some of us here who consider ourselves part of the St. Peter's family, but aren't yet giving regularly to the work that God's doing here. Can I please ask whether you would pray about starting to give? Second thing, if you are already giving regularly to the church, can I ask for you to pray about increasing it to 10%? I don't believe in the tithe. I don't think it's a rule that we have to follow. You can have differing opinions on that. It really doesn't matter because the reality is I believe that God asks us to give way more than the tithe away in our financial giving. From a New Testament perspective, the tithe is the bare minimum. We should be recklessly, ridiculously um, generous with our wealth and giving away to the needs around us so that it doesn't dominate our life, so that it's not the thing that we're looking looking to for security or significance. Now, the reason I say increasing to 10% is because these kind of moments in church are an opportunity to review our giving. So it might be that you started it up um, a while ago and you just need to ask the Holy Spirit, are you asking me to give more at this time? Hanel and I had to take two years really to get to the level of 10% in our giving to church. And the reason for that is because we were terrible at financially planning. So we couldn't give that amount at the, at the time when we started giving, but we started to plan for it over the two years and now we're giving over 10% and giving more away as a result. I'm not saying that to boast in any way whatsoever. I'm rubbish at giving away, but we've had, it's something that we've had to think about and we've had to ask the Holy Spirit to help us with and to have a discipline of. So is God asking you to increase it? And thirdly, um, is the Spirit asking you to give a one-off gift um, at this time to meet some of the costs that I've just outlined? How do you give? Can you please get the two things that you are sitting on, on your seat? There's two forms here, a green one and a white one. Lizzie, just in your head, can you think of a song um, in a minute? A short song. Are you even here? It's just you. You don't need to be anyone else. Preferably about money. Where is Lizzie? she here? No? Lucy, you can do one, can't you? Song on... Yeah, just anything. Um, so, this green one is ways that you can give here. Um, that's to take home with you. This white one here is a pledge. So in a moment, I'm going to leave some space and we're going to ask the Holy Spirit how he wants us to respond to this giving day. Remember, if you're a guest or a visitor, don't worry about this. You can use it to think about your own money. Um, 
but we're going to ask the Holy Spirit how he wants us to give. And this is a pledge form. So you can write down your pledge there. And we're going to pass the basket around, stick it in the basket. Just gives us an idea about how um, we're responding here to this gift day. And then you can follow up when you get home with that. If your circumstances change, you get home, you realise you can't afford to do that, absolutely fine, don't worry. We're not going to chase you down at all. This is just a pledge form so that we know what's going on. And there are pens under your seats so as to fill these things out. So if you could grab the pens under your seats, that would be great. Let's spend a moment waiting in silence.